Don't you love the sound of babies? You do not need to run and hide. It is life in our church, which is awesome. That, that makes, me, makes me very happy. Uh, and extra happy that it's not mine. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm done. I'm done. Uh, well, good morning. Um, thanks for joining us. If you haven't met me before, my name's Scotty, and I have the amazing privilege of getting to help lead this group of people in the things that God is calling us into. Um, on the note of babies, um, we're not pregnant. Uh, <laughs> just pray, pray that that doesn't happen. Um, you know, when I when I was a baby, you know, you're having a baby. There's the whole thing about picking the name, right? So um, I was very shocked to find out that when I was born, that uh, my mom expected me to be a girl. And wanted to call me Michelle so that I could go by Shelly. Are there any Michelles or Shellys in the room? Okay. As a Scot, that sounded awful. Uh, so, so that's it. If you, you, you want to know my alter ego, it's Shelly. Um, I know with my kids, funny story. So we've got three kids, Ellie and Sky. But when, when we were pregnant with Ella, here's the deal. In my family, all we have is boys. In every direction, there's just boys in the Burns line. And so we grew up knowing that we are going to have boys. <laughs> you know how this went, right? So my whole life, I'm going to be a boy dad. Uh, when we find out we're pregnant, it's a boy. I'm like, my whole life, I had two names that I wanted for sons. I wanted a son to be called Kieran or Ewan. My dad had kids like 10 years after us and called his first one Kieran, so that stole that one. So I was like, if I have a boy, it's going to be called Ewan. And so I'm like, here's the choices. Like, well, I think Ewan is the right name for like a boy. And, and uh, Monica was like, well, I love your grandma. My grand's called Ella. So if it's a girl, can we call the baby Ella? So here's how the story goes. I, uh, Monica hates, hated Monica hated the name Ewan. She was like, no, we're not calling our kid that. No one will ever be able to spell it. No one will be able to pronounce it. It's going to be a nightmare. I don't like the name. So we were wrestling with other names instead of Ewan. And so I was very clever. And I thought, you know what? I'm only going to have boys, right? So if I say, sure, you can call a girl Ella if you want to. That means if it's a boy, I get veto power and it gets to be Ewan, right? This, this, was, this was my scheming mind. So, oh, of course you can call the baby Ella. Like, and if it's a boy, <clears throat> Caleb. Okay, so uh, I, we go to the scan, 20 weeks, where we find out the gender of the baby. And uh, we walk into the room, and we're all excited to find out we're having a boy. They do the scan. They point to these three little lines. And they're like, it's a girl. And I'm like, let me see that again. There's no way it's a girl. Um, and I'm like, we don't have girls in our family. They're like, no, it's a girl. And they're showing me. I was like, no. Monica's like crying with excitement that we're having a girl. And I'm like, I don't know how to do girls. I can't do this. God, why would you do this to me? And then I do the thing that you do. I look at Monica and I was like, if it's a girl, what are we going to name her? I didn't think of girl names. And she's like, well, we already agreed on it, right? Ella. And I was like, oh, dang. Uh, the beauty in the story after that, we called her Ella, which is, was wonderful, and it was a real way to honor my grandma, who looked like 
the Queen of England. She was fantastic. But uh, then second child comes along. In the time in between, Monica was so heartbroken over the fact that I didn't have the boy that I thought I was going to have that the name Ewan grew on her. So by the time we had our second child, we knew it was going to be called Ewan, and I was very, very excited. So anyway, naming is funny, right? You, you've got your reasons, you've got your meanings, people that you want to honor, things that you want to do. Um, names don't always work out the way you want them to. Um, but just a little bit of my story as we're in this series, we're, we're, what, what's, what's in a name? We're looking at this new name that we're taking as a church and asking the question, like, what's its significance? Why have we landed on this word? If you haven't seen it, um, September 25th, we're going to take this new name, Arise Church. Um, and we're in this series asking, like, what does this word arise mean and why is it significant for us? And this has been a long process of discerning and reflecting. Um, and so we're going to lean into another way that this word is used in scripture. So if you remember some of what we've done so far, we've talked about arise as this, the, the, the phrase is liminal space, the in-between, between being on your face before the Lord and getting up to do the action that he's called us to do. In between uh, bowing before the Lord and acting, you have to get up off your feet and go. Uh, we talked about arise as deliberate obedience. So all of the times in scripture where God gives a command to someone and he says, so get up and go, arise and go do what it is that he's called us to do. Um, this morning we're going to look at uh, arise in terms of uh, the one way it's translated. Let me stick up on the board before I try and garble my way through it without it. So um, the We've been looking at the Greek word anastemi because we've been looking at New Testament passages. Right now we're jumping back into the Old Testament. So the word is in Hebrew. The word that is often translated or most often translated arises is word kum. And it has multiple ways that it's translated just like anastemi. So we've got to arise, to stand up, to rise up. But then there's this, what we call a semantic domain. There's a domain of related meanings around this concept of to stand. If you cause something to stand, like a building, you establish it. Uh, if it's a promise or a, a, a law, you can ratify it, confirm it. It's to persist in something. It's for something to be set, fixed, proven, fulfilled. So there's this range of meaning in Scripture where the word arise is used, not in terms of us standing up and doing something, but in terms of this, this concept of something being fixed and established and set in place the way God intends it to be. So today, I want to look at a passage that's looking at the word arise in Scripture used in this way uh, as God uses it to describe how he establishes his word and his promises in the earth. And, and I think as a church that values the word of God, that this word means that God's word is fixed and established and that we live into that is really important for our, our identity. So we're, to do this, we're going to look at um, Genesis chapter 17. So those with Bibles, you want to turn to Genesis 17. I'm going to read through the chapter, and then we'll pull out some, some observations from the chapter. So um, Genesis chapter 17, we're going to look at a name change story in Scripture and the significance as it relates to this word arise. So Genesis 17, starting at verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Then I will make my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Abram fell face down and God said to him, 
As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham, for I've made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come, to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give you as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. Let me just pause there for a second. I read this line earlier. The whole land of Canaan where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give you as an everlasting possession to you. Just want to throw this one in here. Found myself going, the whole land of Hillsborough, I will give to you, church, as an everlasting possession. Um, Sometimes I think we read these and we think they're going to go conquer the land and we forget that this world that we live in has already been conquered and it's been given to the church to lead uh, and, and, uh, uh, and to invest in and develop. And so just a little side note there. Uh, verse nine, then God said to Abraham, as for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you for the generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you're to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You're to undergo circumcision and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. For the generations to come, every male among you who's eight days old must be circumcised, including those born in your household or bought with money from a foreigner, those who are not your offspring. Whether born in your household or bought with your money, they must be circumcised. My covenant in your flesh is to be made an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. God also said to Abram, as for Sarai, your wife, you are no longer to call her Sarai. Her name will be Sarah. I will bless her and surely give you a son by her. I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. Abraham fell face down. He laughed and said to himself, will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah bear a child at age of 90? And Abraham said to God, if only Ishmael might live under your blessing. Then God said, yes, but your wife Sarah will bear you a son and you will call him Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. And as for Ishmael, I have heard you. I will surely bless him. I will make him fruitful and greatly increase his numbers. He will be a father of 12 rulers and I will make him into a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you by this time next year. When he'd finished speaking with Abraham, God went up from him. On that very day, Abram took his son Ishmael and all those born in his household or bought with his money, every male in his household, and circumcised them, them as God told him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised and his son Ishmael was 13. Abraham and his son Ishmael were both circumcised on that very day and every male in Abraham's household, including those born in his household or brought, bought from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. This is the word of the Lord. So I want you to indulge me as we go into this story. There's some, some observations I want to pull out, but I want to just preface it with some things that happen right at the beginning of the passage. So we're going to put up the first few verses again. 
Um, and I, I just want to observe some things I think are important and encouraging and challenging right as the story opens. So first of all, the story begins with Abraham at 99 years old. So here's what I want to say. And you, you know this, right? If you're here in the room and you are old, there's no one in the room that's 99, right? If you're here in the room and you're old, God can still work in you. Right? This is always the encouragement when we come to this story. It doesn't matter what age you are, God can still do incredible, powerful, miraculous things in you. If you're here in the room and you are young, respect the elders around you because even though they are older, God can still do miraculous, mighty, powerful things through them. I think it's one of the powerful parts at the beginning of this story. Age is not a limiter for the Lord, and we can't allow that to be a limiter in our minds. Second thing in this little part that I want to draw attention to is the instruction given to Abraham. At 99 years old, how would you like it if God came and gave you this instruction today? I'm the Lord Almighty, walk before me faithfully, and be blameless. I guess it doesn't matter what age you are. How do you feel if that's God's instruction to you today? Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Particularly at 99 years old, there's two ways that I could see this going. Perhaps it's easy to walk with the Lord and be blameless because of a life that has been lived in service of him with a heart that's soft to him, being practiced at obedience to the Lord. And so walking in a quote-unquote blameless way would be easy. I think probably the reality for most of us Most of us, it's a mixed bag, but perhaps it's more hard because the longer that we live, the longer we get habituated in our self-dependence and our broken patterns, the longer that we're habituated in our grumbling or our complaining or our doing things one way, the same way all the time, and often it's a little bit of a combination of both, right? We're practicing obedience to God, our hearts are being softened, and we're practicing being habituated in the brokenness of the world. So this instruction is as challenging to us today as it was to him then. And the Almighty walk before me faithfully and be blameless, but perhaps there's a beauty in this that Abraham didn't understand. He didn't yet understand what Paul is going to say in Romans, that the righteousness of Christ, like your, your faith is credited as righteousness, that because of Jesus we stand blameless in the presence of God. The last observation here before we go on to, to, to the key points is, is the very last line. Abraham fell face down. So first of all, I read this and I was like, at 99 years old? <laughs> Usually falling face down at 99 is not a good thing. But here it is awesome. Uh, Abraham is limber. Uh, he fell face down. And face down, God spoke. (laughs) Face down, God spoke. I think God often speaks to us when we're face down. I think many of us live our life longing to hear from God, longing for instruction, longing for guidance. We gather as the church and we say, is God speaking today? Does he want to say something to me? Does he want to move through me? Uh, I think we don't hear him enough because we're not face down enough. Sometimes being face down comes uh, through hardship. 
and difficulty as we're taken to the side, as we're dealing with illness that humbles us in a way that causes us to cry out to him and listen to what he has to say. Sometimes it's a habit that we cultivate of coming and being on our face before him. But Abraham fell on his face and God spoke. And uh, as we did in the first message of this series, what's the next thing he has to do? After he's face down on the ground and God gives him an instruction, he arises. Uh, So often for us, I think the challenge is, are we getting face down enough to hear the voice of God as he speaks? And then when we hear it, are we willing to step up to arise and do what it is that he's calling us to do? There are four ways that I want to look at this passage and tie it into this season of renaming. Um, They're very obvious, but the first one here, the first uh, observation in this passage, the first point in here about renaming that you see is simply God changed Abram and Sarai's names. No longer will you be called Abraham, your name will be Abraham. I want you to notice, it doesn't say Abram decided he didn't like his name and changed it to Abraham. It says God gave Abraham a new name. God's the one that did it. It wasn't them doing it themselves. It didn't come from a worldly origin. And I think that's important for where we're at in the church. On one side of this fence, we could say this is just a rebranding exercise. We've decided there's a cooler, better name out there and we're just going through this exercise where we have come up with it ourselves, and then trying to, to, to push forward in that. The other side of it is to say there's been a two-year discernment process where we've been asking the Lord, should we change our name? We've been wrestling and saying, what should that look like? And what it looked like in the church was, this is something we should consider. And then all of a sudden, this word started popping up everywhere. And so before we'd even had time to start thinking about other names, this word was here and we're going, what do we do with it? And then the more we've leaned into it and the more we've tried it on and and examined the word, it felt fitting for where we're at in the life of the church. And then we presented it to you and there's been a lot of excitement around it. A lot of people coming and saying, I was reading my Bible this week and I saw the word in there and this is a good name for our church. If it's us doing it, it's futile. It may have some worldly benefit. If it's God doing it, there are eternal implications of walking into this name. With Abram and Sarah, uh, you've got those two moments. No longer will you be called Abram, your name will be Abraham. As for Sarah, your wife, she's no longer Sarah, her name will be Sarah. What, what do these names mean? What, like if, you've got, if you're reading a Bible or if you're on your phone, there's usually a footnote next to the names that tell you what they mean. So Abram was the name for exalted father. Within his line, he was exalted and celebrated as a father. That's what his name meant. And he had Ishmael and the line that was going to come from here. But God's promise was you're more than just an exalted father in your family. Because of the promise that I'm going to make to you, you're going to become a father of many. And many nations are going to find their lineage in you. So this was a transformation of his thinking from just the father exalted within his family to seeing himself as having a broader impact throughout the world. I love in the story, it could have ended there. He could have said the promise is through Abraham and and the people of faith are going to be the people and the descendant of Abraham and Sarah's just the one that carries the baby. It could have been Abraham and Sarai and just the story could have gone on. But God wants it to be clear to her 
and to them and to their family and to the world that she's also an important part of the promise. And so her name gets changed too. And the names are very similar. They both mean princess. The difference is Sarai, the, the I on the end, means mine. So it's a statement of possession. And in this culture, a wife was the possession, or a woman was the possession of her father. And then when she got married, became the possession of her husband. So Sarah's name said she was her husband's princess or her father's princess when she would be named. So it was a possessive declaration. Your identity will always be through being possessed by someone else. And then she changes the, he changes the name to Sarah, which means princess. You're going to be a royal person in your own standing. No longer possessed by someone else, but ruling alongside your husband, the father of many nations, with a princess ruling alongside him. And in fact, when I think about this story, Sarah's part is more important than Abraham's. If you don't know how babies are made, you can ask Kerry after the service, and he can explain to you, because I'm not going to do that. But uh, there's... The man's only involved for a moment, but this whole promise of descent to be passed through the son of Sarah makes her the central character in the story. She's the one that's going to carry the child. She's the one that's going to give birth to the child of promise and foreshadow Mary birthing Jesus, the true child of promise. So they're given, God changed their names and there's, there's important purpose in that. So the second observation with this as it relates to our church, their name carries a promise. I don't know if you, you noticed with each one as he declared the new name, there was a promise made with it. The renaming wasn't just for fun, it carried purpose in God's plan. So let's look at the two uh, scripture passages side by side. Your name will be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. Then promise, I will make you fruitful, I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. And then he's telling her, but Sarah, Sarah's name is going to change. I'm going to bless her. She will sh- you will surely have a son by her. I will bless her so that she will become the mother of nations. Kings of people will come from her. These incredible promises attached to the new names. God gives them the name so that every time their name is spoken, it's a reminder of the promise that's going to happen. Imagine Sarah for 90 years, she's been alive. So how long would it be? 80 years, 75 years where she's been trying to conceive a child and unable. And God's just given her a new name, symbolizing a promise that she's going to have a child for the first time. Could you imagine what it did to her every time someone said her name? And during her pregnancy, what happened every time someone said her name and she remembered that that child inside was a a promise from God that they were standing in. There's a promise attached to the name. When we look at this word in scripture, this word arise, when we think about what it means for us to take this name as a church, believing God has given us a new name and telling us to stand in it, there is promise attached to this word. One of my favorite things about the character of God is that we get to look at what his word says and when he makes a promise, we get to hold him to it and he has obligated himself to uphold the promises that he makes to us. So all of these things that we're looking at about the word arise and what it means in scripture, when God is saying, this is the identity I want you to take, we now get to hold him to attach to that name. There are promises attached to the names. 
The third observation, more than just a promise attached to it, their names were a reminder of God's covenant. They're a precursor to the covenant that he's about to give, and they become reminders of the covenant and how to walk in it. So this name change is explicitly tied to God's covenant, and this for me is where this whole passage gets interesting as we're thinking about what it means for us as a church. So again, a couple of places in this passage where we see the same thing repeated, Genesis 17, 7, I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you. The word here, I will establish, is the word kum. I will cause my covenant to arise, to stand up, to be sitting right here. It's going to happen. It's going to be fulfilled. It's going to be set in place. It's going to be persevere. And not just establish a covenant. This is why I love this. He's not just, we're just going to write a law and it's going to set in place. What was the covenant for? It was to point ahead to the new covenant that was going to be sealed by the blood of Jesus. And how was that covenant established? Didn't just stand, it literally arose in order to establish the fuller covenant. So in this word is even a foretaste. They translate this as set in place. But in this word was a foreshadowing that the covenant would be established by someone rising from the dead on our behalf. It is literally ratified by Jesus arising. So their names, every time they heard them, were a reminder of the covenant. And I'm sure there were days, well, I'm sure at the beginning, it's like the quirkiness of having a new name and trying to remember to respond to it when someone says it. I'm sure for Abraham, it felt like someone was coughing in the middle of his name. He went from Abraham to Abraham. Uh, so, So just that, like, I'm sure it was disorienting. But initially, every time that disorientation happened, it was a reminder that they were walking in a new identity. But I'm sure as life went on, they got used to the name. And someone would say it, and it was just the name used to talk to them, and they'd lose sight of the identity, the promise, and the covenant that stood in it. And that's going to happen here, right? Initially, when we're trying to correct ourselves, it's ABC. No, it's not ABC. We're talking in the office the other day. How do you normally answer the phone? Good morning, Alliance Bible Church. It's like, so what are you going to say now? Arise, arise, church. Arising Bible Church. Like what's, just, but in those moments of disorientation that we have, those are the moments that remind us that we're taking a new identity that God is giving us. That there's a promise attached to it and there's a covenant. Why is covenant important? Because there's two sides in a covenant. There's the promise that God makes to his people and then there's the promise that we make back to him in response. There's things we're required to do to uphold our part in the covenant, to fix our eyes on Jesus, to live the way that he calls us to live. And so we stand on the promises of God. Why was the church originally changed from Hillsborough Alliance to Alliance Bible Church? Because of a conviction that as a church we needed to stand on the word of God. That is not changing. It is now inside this name that we are a church committed to standing on his promises. I've stuck a little verse on the side there. You see it? One that's often well known if you read your Bible with any regularity, Proverbs 19.21. Many are the plans of a person's heart, but it's the Lord's purpose that prevails. And the word prevails is the word rise. 
We make many, many plans. We try and figure it out all the time. But the plan that's going to arise and take root and be established and do what it was intended to do is the Lord's purpose. So if we were changing the name just for a branding exercise and for a bit of fun, we can make our plans, but it's the Lord's purpose that's going to arise. And so this is an invitation again to stand on the promise of God. We're not saying we're no longer Alliance Bible Church so we don't care about the word of God. This is an invitation again to re-examine yourself. Are you willing to make a commitment as we take this new name that you're gonna continue to root your life on the word of God? That you're gonna fix your eyes on his promises and carry them out into the world? The The way I've been thinking about this is we are promise bearers. We talked in pre-service prayer. uh, Mike Rollins felt like God was in the middle of this rebranding and repainting and this makeover that we're happening right now. uh, Mike says what what is really happening is a psychological rebranding. God is reworking our minds to see the kingdom differently. It's it's even further, well, you know the word psychology is The word suke is the word for soul. So it's really a a, a rebranding of our soul to walk in the way of Jesus. So we are called to live differently to the world as promise bearers. I think sometimes as Christians, we have the mindset that we understand the truth of God and then our job is to go out into the world and speak those truths at people. But it's more than that. We are promise bearers. So we actually carry and bear the promises of God everywhere we go. So that means we go and we testify to those promises. We hold on to them in our life and call him to bring them to be in us. And then we go out into the world and we share what those promises are to people and we offer them to people and we invite them into those promises so that they can then go out and carry those promises to other people. Our lives are supposed to be markedly different because we acknowledge, hope in, carry and pass on the promises of God. That's what it means to be people who arise. So to wrap up, I want to give you some very definitive application steps again uh, as, as we leave and think about what's coming next. So first one is remember. Remember what, this question. What promises has God given directly to you? There are promises in scripture that you can open your Bible and see all sorts of promises and like these are wonderful, but what are the ones that over your life as you've you've engaged the scriptures that God has uniquely hit home in you? And then what are some of the things as you've been going through your life you felt God spoke this promise to me? Can you remember? Take some time to remember and reflect and write down the specific promises God made to you. Uh, second one, I want you to take some time to reflect. Do you really believe that God can use you in a powerful way today? We often say, I believe God can use me. I believe God can do things through me. I believe God's still working. Do you really believe that despite your illness, despite your mind not working the way it used to, despite your youth, Despite your lack of money, despite your poor theology, despite your brokenness, do you really believe that God can overcome or work through those things in a powerful way today? 
And then what are the changes that you need to make on your end of the deal? If we're saying we're going to be a people who arise and God has these promises that he's giving to us, what needs to change in you to fulfill your part of the covenant to be a person who arises? And then the last one, I want you to take time to write an arise declaration. What do I mean by that? I want you to think about what it means if our church takes the name Arise Church, not if, when our church takes the name Arise Church. And this is now our identity. With the name Arise are all of these promises of what God is going to do in and through us. We have a part to play in that. So what's your declaration of how you're going to arise in the world? And I want you to write down, and here's what I'd love you to do, is uh, you, can, you can write them and bring them in paper, stick them in the, the offering box at the back, drop them at the office, mail them into the church, or email it to hello at alliancebible.church. But I would love to see a written declaration. This is how I feel God is asking me to arise in the world. This is the commitment I'm making to him as we step into this new era and season as a church. So I want you to write one. Uh, and at some point, we'll actually make more time to, to really dig into this. We've got some plans for the fall for this. But it's not just taking on a new name. It's not just saying this is a name that we like or will endure. But this is us saying as we take on this name, we are fully entering in to all that this means. Arising as God's people, standing on his promises and bearing them to the world round about us. Let me pray. God, thank you that you are the promise giver. Jesus, thank you that you were the promise bearer and the promise keeper. And Holy Spirit, thank you that you are the, I guess, the promise passer-honorer, passing on to us, enabling us to understand them, to stand in them, and to be successful in carrying them to the world. God, as we look at Abraham and Sarah and your work in them, new names, new promises, and a covenant in which they would live, Lord, it it, it humbles me that in this season, again in our church, you've done it before, a new name, a new promise, a new identity, God, again, we step into this and we say thank you for leading us in a new direction and thank you for uh, giving promises to us Help us as we walk into the world to bear your promises, to arise in the calling that you've given us. And then would you do what you do so well and fuel and empower the work that you've called us to do that it would bear much fruit for your name and for your glory, we pray. Amen.